Today, if you have your Bible with you, turn to Matthew chapter one and be patient, we'll get there here in a moment. I just wanna say real quickly, thank you to Pastor Micah for preaching a couple of amazing messages the last couple weeks as we were in South Texas ministering for Good Shepherd Community Church and had a wonderful trip, a wonderful time there in that amazing church, but come on, grateful to be back home. How many know there's no place like home? And so grateful to be back with you today. And uh, I'm gonna start a a little mini series today uh, called The Reason for the Season. And how many of you are familiar with that statement? We kind of hear that this time of year. And the context to that for us is typically just an encouragement or a reminder to not forget that Jesus is the real reason for the Christmas season. And I want to encourage you, keep Christ in Christmas, even as the, the world, and I'm grateful that they're doing it, even the secular world, Christ is on their lips, even if they don't know it, as they say Christmas, Christmas really is about the coming of Christ. But I wanna encourage you, really endeavor to keep Christ at the center of everything that you're about this Christmas season. But I got to thinking about this, you know, that little statement that we say, the reason for the season, it reminds us that Jesus is the reason for our celebrations. But I got to thinking about it from a little different perspective, a little different angle. What's the reason from God's perspective for the season? That there were some motivations, there were some things that caused God to send Jesus, and that's what Christmas is all about, the arrival, the coming of the Messiah, the Savior of the world whose name is Jesus. And so let's dig in these next couple weeks into what God has to say in his word about his reasons for this season that we call Christmas. And so let me pray over the word today, and would you pray right where you are, man of God, woman of God, as I pray corporately over us, would you pray individually, would you ask God to speak to you? and encourage you to strengthen you or comfort you or maybe challenge you in the places that you need to be spoken to or places where God needs to remind you of some things that he's spoken over your life or maybe you're here today. In fact, let's just get to praying it instead of preaching it. Father, we just thank you that your heart today for every man, woman, every family, every marriage, every young person that's here in this room joining us online, Lord, is to strengthen us, encourage us, God, challenge us, Lord, to grow in our faith, to look more like Jesus, and we thank you, Lord, that you are near to the brokenhearted. Anyone who's here today and they're maybe hurting, they're lonely, they're, they're longing for something, needing something in their life, spiritually, emotionally, physically, Lord, maybe up against a diagnosis or some kind of a challenge in their health, Lord. Relationally, God, maybe in a, in a season of strife or a season of challenge in a marriage or a relationship, God, thank you that your heart today is to speak to your people. I humbly ask you, God, would you use an imperfect preacher and an imperfect message to reveal the heart of a perfect father today, whose heart is filled with love and hope and goodness and forgiveness for every person, every situation and circumstance. It's not lost on you, Lord. You see, you know, and you care, God. And would you come today, Lord, and would you bring hope, courage, freedom, strength, fresh faith for the future that you have in your heart, God, for every man, woman, and family in this place, every young adult in this place, in the mighty name of Jesus. And come on, if you'll just receive a little bit of that for yourself, your marriage, your family, give the Lord a good amen. Amen. All right, so what is God's reason, God's reasons for this season? Matthew chapter one, verse 23 says, look, the virgin will conceive a child, she will give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Come on, aren't you grateful that God loved us too much to leave us lost in our sin? And aren't you grateful that God was willing to step down from his throne, this place of privilege and safety and security and come and live amongst us for God to put on human skin and become flesh, to come and experience and endure every trial, every temptation that we would ever endure or experience yet without sin so that he could be the one that would pay the price to make a way to bring us back 
into a relationship with God, but yet he would endure and experience everything that we would experience so that he could now be, the Bible says, seated at the right hand of God, interceding for you and I as our big brother in the faith. That's what Christmas is all about, God with us. God coming to earth, God not settling for us just knowing about him in books of theology or in stories of history, but God saying, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna live amongst you. I'm gonna come and I'm going to dwell among you. And so I've got a couple of points today and within the second point, kind of five sub points, and the number one point, Jesus's, or God's rather, reasons for the season is that Jesus came to reveal to us who the Father really is. Jesus came to show us who God really is. There's a myriad, there's a variety of opinions and ideas and thoughts and perspectives about who God really is. Jesus came to show us who God really is. And this is important because perhaps more than anything, your perspective about how you see God and how you perceive God, perhaps more than anything, affects your ability to receive from God and relate to God. And unfortunately, many of us have experiences on this side of eternity that have filtered or influenced the way we perceive and the way we see God. Because of maybe painful experiences in life where we felt like God was far away or that God shouldn't or wouldn't have allowed these things if he wasn't loving. Because of maybe the ways that, that religion has misrepresented God to us. Perhaps because of maybe experiences letdowns, um, mis the mistakes or the misgivings of our earthly parents, especially our earthly fathers, those experiences can influence or affect the way we see and perceive God. And, and let us not be mistaken, how we perceive or see God doesn't change who he really is. It just affects our ability to relate to him and receive from him. How many of you can relate to that? Like the way that some of the things that you've been through in life sometimes have kind of spoken to you louder about who you believe God is than what God's word has to say. And so God's number, one of God's reasons for the season, for Christmas, is to come and reveal to us the nature and the character of God. God sent Jesus to show us who he really is. John 14, verse eight and nine, the disciples are kind of gathered around, and Philip, one of the disciples, is sharing here, and he says to, to Jesus, he says, Lord, show us the Father, and that is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, and I don't know about you, but as I read this, I just kind of read that maybe Jesus, there was kind of some exasperation in Jesus's voice, at least that's how kind of the tone that I read Jesus's response through, that's the filter that I read, because watch what Jesus said. He said, have I been with you so long and yet you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. God sent Jesus. One of God's reasons for the season is to reveal the nature and the character of who the Father really is. And again, in, in, a, in a world where there's a myriad, a variety of opinions and ideas or concepts about who God is, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John 14, seven, Jesus says, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And he says, from now on, you do, know, you do know him and have seen him. So he says, from now on, in other words, because Christmas happened, because I came into the world, because I, because I came into your circumstances, because I was unwilling to stay far away and removed on my throne, because I came into your life, because I came into your dark, dark and difficult moments, because I came, he says, from now on, 
You will know who the Father is because you've seen and you have known me. John chapter eight is one of the most powerful examples, I believe, that reveals to us the heart and the nature of God. And just speaks so clearly as to what God was about when he sent Jesus into the world and into your life and to my life. And you might be familiar with it, Jesus is speaking and as he's speaking it says in verse three, it says the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery and they put her in front of the crowd. She had really done the thing. And maybe today you've really done the thing but I'm telling you, you might have done the thing but you were not the thing. What you've done does not define you. And you're about to see how Jesus responds to broken, hurting people who have made real mistakes, real missteps, real misgivings, real sin, real darkness, real oppression. I'm telling you, Jesus, God came, God sent Jesus. One of his reasons for the season was to show us the heart, the nature, and the character of God to a hurting, broken, sinful world. And they said, teacher, this woman was caught in the act, and the law says that we should stone her. What do you say? And it says that they were, were trying to trap him, verse six, into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down. Jesus stooped down. Love stoops into broken, hurting, painful moments and situations. And, and it says Jesus stooped down. And, and he began to write in the dust with his finger, but they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned be the one to throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again, and he began to write in the, in the dust. And when the accusers heard and saw this, they began to slip away one by one, the Bible says, beginning with the oldest, probably because it, they were the wisest. And it says, until only was Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And, and many theologians have debated over the years, what was Jesus writing in the dust? I don't know for sure what he was writing, but whatever it was, it got their attention. And it caused them to realize God's seen my sinful moments. Who who am I to hold her to a standard that I violated myself? And so Jesus stooped down into her broken situation. Jesus causes those who would accuse her and condemn her to flee. And then he leans down into her life and he says, where are your accusers? Did even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I Go and sin no more. I don't know about you, but I'm grateful in my own life. Let me just speak for myself that I serve a God who stoops down into my life, that I serve a God who's willing to get down into the dirt of my life, that I serve a God who's willing to send Jesus to get down into the dark moments of my life, that I serve a God who isn't willing to just relate to me and engage with me when I'm on the mountains of life, when I'm making the good decisions, when I'm doing all things right. Jesus stoops down. Come on, the love of the Father stoops down. He's God with you in the difficult moment, in the valley of oppression, when you're going through the waters, when you're going through the fire. God is Emmanuel, Christ with you. Come on, if you're grateful that God stoops into our life and he gets into those broken moments, come on, give the Lord a praise. That's the God we serve. One of the reasons for the season was to reveal who God really is. And he said, I forgive you. I don't condemn you. But then he also says, now go and sin no more. He he says, I'll meet you in that painful moment and I'll extend my grace and my mercy. I'll cover you. I'll shield you. I'll protect you. But now in the wake of that mercy and that grace that you couldn't earn and you never will deserve, he says, now I'm inviting you to go and to begin to live a new and a better life. Now I'm calling you in the wake of that grace. That's why when we define the values of our church family, one of the things that we defined was that we would be an atmosphere of grace and growth. 
And the way we defined it, you could go read it for yourself. In our vision book, it says that we believe that there's no sin that is greater than the blood of Jesus. But we believe that once we've encountered the grace of God, it compels us to desire to want to grow in our faith and become more and more and more and more and more every day like Jesus. We're an atmosphere of grace and growth. Why? Because that's who God is. That's who God is. John 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God put on skin and came to live with you and I. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, watched us full of grace and truth. Someone say grace and truth. That's who God is. Verse 17, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Come on, you gotta get it in your spirit today. Say grace and truth. And there's a statement I've made over the years that bears repeating in this context. Truth without grace can be mean. But grace without truth can be meaningless. And Jesus was full of both the grace of God and the truth of God. He's he's abundant. He's slow to anger, abundant in mercy, rich in love, the Bible says. But he also is inviting you and I to a new and better way to live a new and better life as we follow him, as we serve him, as we begin to build our life on the unshakable thing, the only thing that's unshakable in this world, which is the word of God. He came to show us the reason for the season, one of God's reasons for the season is to show you and I who God really is. He stoops into hurting, broken moments of our life. He forgives us, he covers us, he gets us back up and he helps us to begin to live a new and better life. Number two, reason for the season, God's reason for the season. There are many things throughout the New Testament, we'll look at a few of them over the next couple weeks, that Jesus said, he just outright said, The son of man, Jesus, I've come to do these things. And one of the things that he said was, I have come to seek and save the lost. He says, I didn't just come to to meet with those who are already religious or righteous. He says, I didn't come to build a congregation or even a denomination. He says, I have come to seek and save those who are far from God. And he underlines this heart when he's telling us through parables in Luke chapter nine, Luke chapter 15, rather, the whole chapter dedicated to three parables that are revealing the heart and the nature of God and underlining this mission, the reason for the season, Jesus coming to seek and save those who were lost. And he tells three parables, the first one of a lost sheep, the second one of a lost coin, and the third one of a lost son, also known as the prodigal son. And so let's just look at these. In verse three, it says, Jesus told them this story. Your translation might say Jesus spoke to them in this parable. And he said, if a man has a 100 sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, someone say the same way. There is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God over 99 others who are righteous and have it straight away. And I don't know about you, I'll just speak for myself. I'm glad when I was the one who was wayward, when I was the one who had lost my way, I'm grateful that God wasn't content to just stay with the congregation he already had. He sent Jesus to seek and save the lost. Come on, if you're grateful that God didn't leave you where you were, but he came and found you, he sought after you, he came running after you, come on, give him some praise today. Reading on verse eight, the parable of the lost coin, it says, suppose a woman 
has 10 silver coins and loses one. Keep in mind, this whole chapter dedicated to these parables, just he's, he's reiterating. He's telling you, you gotta catch this. I came to seek and save. I came to reach out to people who were far from God and bring them into a relationship to forgive them and make a way that they could come home to their heavenly father. And it says, suppose that woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she'll call her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me. Some would say rejoice, because I found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Have you ever lost something that was really important to you? And have you ever experienced the joy? Maybe it was a day or two or three. I think there's even more joy when maybe it's a month or three months or six months or nine months when you find that thing in the couch cushion or you find that thing under the car seat or you find that thing you've looked and you've looked and you've looked and you've looked and you found it. You remember that sense of joy that you got? Come on, when you found the money or you found the ring or you found the ear, the AirPod or whatever it was that you had lost and that little sense of joy that you had in that moment pales in comparison to the joy that heaven feels. Bible, the Bible says when even one person comes home to Christ. He came to seek and save the lost. And religion is the story of man's forever frustrated attempt to make ourselves right with God and acceptable to God. That's the story of religion. The story of Christmas is God's forever successful plan to enter into our lives and make us completely right and wholly acceptable to God. That's the story of Christmas. He came to seek and save the lost. Christmas is the story of a God who refused to stay far away, a God who refused to stay upon his throne. It would have been easier to do that, no doubt. But he refused to do that. He came seeking after, he came running after, he's seeking. He's not just saving, he's seeking. He's seeking. The gospel is being preached in advance. Come on, if you're here today and you're far from God, if you're here today and you feel like life is hopeless, if you're here today and you don't know where to turn or what to do, he's seeking you. He's calling out to you. The Bible says, Revelation 3, he's knocking at the door of your heart. Look, behold, he says, I stand at the door and I knock. If you hear my voice, what will your response be? Will you open the door? Will you open your life? Will you open your heart? And will you let me in? And we see it played out in the very Christmas story, Luke chapter two. Joseph, it says, went up from Galilee. Caesar Augustus has called for a census. And so all these families, you can picture it in your mind's eye, according to the decree of the emperor, they're all gathering their families and they're going back to their hometowns to be counted as part of the Roman census. And it says that, that Joseph went up from the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger. We sang about that this morning. It's right from the Bible. Laid him in a manger. But catch this. Because there was no room for them in the inn. Because there was no place. Because there was no room for them. And I think it's just fascinating and prophetically significant that right there in the story of Christmas, we see that right from the start, it was established that there would be, there would be a people who, who would not make room for Jesus in their lives. And the challenge that we have today is to say, are we making room for God in our lives? Are we opening, are we answering the call? He's knocking on the door of your heart. 
He's seeking after you. He says, that's the reason I came. I didn't need a holiday. I didn't need a, I didn't need a congregation or a denomination. I'm after you individually and specifically. And, and will you answer? Will you make room today? It's easy to see that many people in the world have no room. They will make no room for Jesus in their lives. But it's true about our lives, even those of us who have encountered God and love God and know God and desire to serve God, that if we're not careful, in fact, I would wager to say it's almost inevitable that in certain seasons of life, we look up and we've gotten caught up in the cares of this world and the things that the world says we've gotta do and be and acquire and attain to be viewed as successful in the eyes of the world. And we can look up and even though we know God, even though we've been reached and sought after and saved, we could look up and realize that we have lost the room in our lives, in our hearts, in our schedules for God. Did you make room for him in this Christmas season? Would you open, would you answer? Because he's knocking at the door of your heart. Would you make room for him? Would you make room in your Christmas season and your Christmas celebrations? All the good things, all the going and the coming, all the buying and the shopping, all the gifts and the giving, all the parties and the, and the things that go along, all the trappings of the holiday that the world calls Christmas and even celebrates to a certain degree, even not knowing the fullness of what they're celebrating. Can we agree that we will make room for Christ in our Christmas? So, so five things I wanna encourage you with because it's important. Now, you'd be surprised You'd be amazed, you'd be blown away at what God could do through you if you just make a little bit more room for him in your life. It's not reserved for the special, it's not reserved for those who are doctrinally or theologically educated. If you'll just make room in your heart, in your life, in your home, in your marriage, in your family, you'd be amazed at what God could do. So I wanna encourage you, there's probably a long list of things that kind of steal away or rob away the room that God intends for us to keep and have and preserve and steward in our hearts for him but I wanna talk to you about five things, five concepts that all start with the letter P, things that I believe are some of the common things that cause us, that keep us from having room for the work of God, for the presence of God, for the purposes of God in our lives. And number one is pride. And there's a lot of different ways that pride manifests in our life, but kind of the context and the angle that I'm coming about it today for the purpose of this message is this. It's the fear of man. It's the pride that gets caught up in self-preservation. It's the pride that causes us to ask, our, ask ourselves this question. What will people think, what will people say if I begin to live for God in a deeper way? What will people think, what will people say? In Mark chapter two, there's this amazing story about these four friends who have experienced a friend who has become paralyzed and they're on a mission to get their friend to Jesus. And here's what it says in verse four. It says, they could not get close to Jesus because of the crowd. And you don't know how many people, young people, you don't know how many of your generation are not getting close, they're not apprehending, they're not perceiving, they're not experiencing, they're not pursuing the heart of God for them, the will of God, the plan of God for their life, for fear of the crowd. What will people say? What will people think? And I'm telling you, it's one of the number one ways that keeps us from making room for what God desires to do in your life, from what God desires to, to, to raise you up and cause you to be and become in your life. And I wanna encourage you today 
I wanna encourage you today to just not allow yourself to get swept in up into the culture of fear of preservation. Don't live for the applause of people. Pursue and live out the purposes of God in your life. There's a day coming for some of us that's sooner than others, and we, no one knows the day that God will call you home to be with him. And whether it's tonight in your sleep or whether it's 100 years from now, and you might say, come on, Pastor T, keep it positive. I'm positive that day's coming for you. And the Bible says that life is but a vapor, James chapter three, I believe. And so there's a day coming for you and for, for me when we'll stand before God, and I promise you in that moment, whether it's a day or 80, day, 80 years from now, rather, it'll seem like it was just a moment. And in that moment, I wanna encourage you. What, what will you be concerned with? Will you be concerned about the peers and the people who right now you're shrinking back and holding back from stepping up and speaking out and standing up for God in your generation? And I'm telling you, in that moment, those things will seem like silliness and folly. And I wanna encourage you, would you own that today? And would you begin to make room for the call of God on your life and your generation? This generation needs, come on, it's turning from God, it's drifting from God, it's opposing God, it's eliminating God from all the corners of our culture and our society. We desperately need a generation. I'm especially speaking to young people, but come on, who will, who will embrace the idea that you're a part of that? Come on, I'm raising my hand. I'm especially speaking to young people, but come on, it applies to all of us. A generation is needed to begin to overcome the fear of man and understand that God has called us to be ambassadors and advancers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the good news for all people who will call upon the name of Jesus. Would you make room in your heart for the plans and the purposes of God? Would you overcome the fear of man, what people will think, what people might say? Number two, it's kind of semi-related to number one, but it's the word people. And there's two ways that I wanna unpack this for you today. And number one is this context that oftentimes in our lives we can apply misplaced trust or dependency on people in our lives to fill the void, to meet the needs in our lives that only God can fill or meet. And in my life, just to be real with you as a pastor, the way I've experienced this some over the years and I've learned it's not that I still don't struggle with it a little bit, but I've learned how, how foolish this is. There's been times in ministry where I've said, as long, as long as that family is still a part of the church, as long as that person is still a part of our worship team, as long as that leader is still serving, and the Lord has allowed me to deal with and experience what it looks like to have to realize that my faith and my trust about his provision and his, his advancement of this ministry that I'm blessed and privileged and honored to be pastor of was never a person, it's not a family, it's not people, it's only Jesus Christ and his presence, his provision, his protection. And we can misplace, what's it look like for you to kind of have misplaced trust or misplaced dependency where it wasn't possible for that person to really fill the need or fill the void in your life? We can do it with our spouses and I'm telling you, as a amazing, if you're blessed to be married in here today or desire to be married someday, as amazing as that person may be, beautiful, attractive, anointed, wise, all those things that your wife or your husband might be, if you're blessed to be married or desire to be married, I'm telling you, they cannot and they will not be able to fill the void that only God can fill in your heart. They cannot meet the needs in your life, in your spirit, that only Jesus Christ can meet in your life. Can I encourage you, do yourself a favor and release them of that burden. And you can't be that for them. 
Only God can meet those needs. Only God can fill that God-shaped hole in your life. Only God can be the source of your provision. Only God can be the source of your identity. Don't misappropriate your trust or your dependency upon a person, upon a pastor, upon a spouse. Only God can do those things in your life. And the second way that I believe God showed me this was the wrong people. That sometimes even with good people, the right people in our lives, we can misappropriate trust or dependency. And, and, and it keeps us from having room in our life for the place that only God can really inhabit and God's intended to inhabit. But, but we can also avoid, we can also miss out on the room that God has for us in our lives when we allow the wrong people into our lives. And, and the Bible says this real clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. It says, do not be misled. Your translation might say, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good character. He says, don't be misled, don't be deceived. You know what I think he's trying to say there is, many have tried this and few have succeeded. When you begin to allow the wrong influences, the wrong voices into your life, ultimately it begins to lead to the wrong choices in your life. And he's saying, if you think that you could go and you can desire to stand for Christ and live for Christ, but begin to allow a bunch of those negative influences in your life or ungodly influences in your life, he says it's just a matter of time when it begins to corrupt that character or that desire to serve and live for God. And so I wanna encourage you, some of what keeps you from having room for the purposes and plans of God in your life is the misplaced trust or dependency upon people or the wrong people in your life. And, and, and here's what I wanna encourage you with. You don't have to shun people. You don't have to judge people, but you can begin to say, you know what, I'm gonna begin to surround myself with people who are faith-filled. I'm no longer gonna allow myself to get into those places where there's gossip and negativity and criticism and fear that are all kind of rampant in the midst of that relationship, or for some of you young people, even some worse things that maybe they're about that, 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 that maybe are, are just not part of God's best for your life. They're not positioning you or advancing you forward towards the purposes of God for your life. You owe it to yourself to begin to recognize those things. And again, don't shun them, don't judge them, don't put them on the outside. Just begin to say, I'm gonna begin to surround myself with friends. I'm gonna begin to surround myself with the people of God, people that are pursuing, people that are following Christ, people who are living for the same things that I'm valuing and that I'm pursuing and living for because bad company corrupts good character. So we gotta overcome pride. We gotta overcome the fear of man. It could keep us or cause us to not make room for what God wants to do in our lives. We gotta not misappropriate or misplace our trust or dependency upon people. We gotta be mindful of the people that we are allowing to be the key strategic influencers in our life. Number three is misplaced priorities. The P word is priorities right here. And, and I wanna encourage you with something that sometimes even right things in wrong order can steal the room that we are intended to have for God in our lives. No, no doubt there's some, some bad things that we need to recognize and say that's definitely not part of me making room for God in my life. But sometimes it's not even bad things, sometimes it's right things in the wrong order. And, and, and God kind of speaks to this through Matthew 6.33. You might expect me to go to this verse where it said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And you know what he's talking about when he says all these things? He's talking about things you legitimately have need of in your life. And he says, I'm not calling you to lay down those things, the things you really need in your life, the things I've really called you to in your life. 
There's some things that God wants you to be about in your life. He just says, would you put me first? Would you put me in my proper place? And would you watch how I will come and begin to supernaturally empower and provide for you in a way that you can never do in your own strength? And you'd be surprised at how many people never really make room for the call of God in their life because they say this, I live for God, but I don't have the time. Or they say, I'd read the Bible, but I just can't find or make the time. And, and I had this thought one day, you know, I mean, I, there's social media, there's some negative things about it. There's some ways we can redeem it. We are redeeming it and using it for the purposes of God. People literally all over the world tuning in to worship with us and growing our faith together through Rev City Online that goes out over some of those social media platforms. But I had this thought, um, I, I, I thought, man, I, I wonder, because there's a lot of negative things that come along with that, and we've yet to really see the fullness of the impact of some of these things, the way that we could become addicted to or dependent upon social media. It's a, new, it's a relatively new phenomenon. But I, I had this thought, I thought, I wonder if maybe God invented social media to keep track and to hold me into an account when I stand before him and I give an answer for the things that God called me to do that I didn't think I could have time or make time for in my life, and where God could say, well, I, I, I understand what you're saying, but you watch 42,000 hours of cat videos in your lifetime, you know? Or for me, tornado videos. You watch 18,000 hours of tornado videos. You watch 22,000 hours of police car chases, Thomas. And so I, I understand you were busy, but you might have had some time. You know, I, I looked it up and I saw this. It's alarming in some ways. And as parents, and I'm not judging anyone here today or anything, I'm just, I'm just saying maybe we ought to just think about this and just ask ourselves, is this really the right direction and trajectory for ourselves? And what's our part in kind of stewarding it well and counseling the next generation and being counseled by the wisdom of God for our own selves? Because here's what, I, here's what I found. You go look it up. It's a New York Times study that in 2022, amongst preteens, that's 11 and 12-year-olds, social media usage is expected to rise from two hours to two and a half hours a day. In teenagers, it's expected to rise from three hours and I think 45 minutes to four hours and 15 minutes per day. And in my generation, it's expected to rise to about two hours a day. And I got to thinking about it. Did you know if you would just tithe that amount of time, you could read the whole Bible in six to nine months? just giving 10% of the time that we, on average, give to social media. And, and, and so, what's it look like for us to begin to make room for God in our lives? What, what's it look like for us to say, I, I wanna begin to prioritize, I wanna begin to live a life where what matters most to God begins to matter most to me. Again, not, not forsaking the real things that he's really called you to do, and be and build with your life. He, he doesn't, I believe football is of God, you know? I mean, I watch, I'm gonna watch football today. And I believe sports with our kids and those kind of things, and I believe vacations and all those things, they're of God, they're things that we should have in our life, but not at the expense of making room in our lives for God. And we are seeing what we get when the culture begins to misprioritize and misallocate and begins to drift from God and begins to drift from church. What's it look like for us to say, hey, it stops with us. We're gonna begin to, we're still gonna do those things. We're still gonna enjoy life. We're still gonna go on the trips. We're still gonna enjoy sports. We're still gonna go on trips with family and friends. But we are going to begin to say, but God remains first in our life. And it's evidenced by the way we schedule and plan our lives. What's it look like for us to make room for God? The Bible, or rather the enemy, 
Satan operates in procrastination and presumption, which sounds something like this, someday or one day. Someday, I'll get around to serving God. One day, I presume I have the chance to step up and do the thing that God's put in my heart to do. And I'm telling you, don't buy into that lie. The language of the Bible, if the enemy is someday or one day, the language of the Bible is this, this day, right? Choose ye this day whom you will serve. Give us this day our daily bread. Come on, let's make room for God in our lives. Number four is possessions, is possessions. And it said there was no room at the end. And, and here's, what that, here's what that means if you think about it. Business was booming. There was no room. There was no vacancy. There were all kinds of customers. And so this person had no room to partner with God in the work of God. And I'm telling you, many a person have climbed the ladder of success only to find out at the end of life that that ladder was leaning on the wrong wall. And Mark chapter eight, verse 36 says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? And I wanna encourage you that God desires to bless you. God desires to prosper you. I mean, did you know the Galatians, I believe chapter three says that the blessing of Abraham is yours through Christ Jesus. Go back and read the blessing of Abraham and then go back and read how abundantly God blessed him. And I'm just telling you, God wants to bless you. God does not despise financial blessing or prosperity. In fact, we need some kingdom people to prosper and to be blessed so that we can build missions, so that we can build churches, so that we can reach people. God does not despise greatness and he does not despise prosperity. But the question for us is this, how much can God bless us and we not use it against him? How much can God bless us and we still remain desperate for him and dependent on him? Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I find myself when things are tough, when things are challenging, when I've got a need, when I've got a sickness, when I've got lack in my life, that's the moment where I hit my knees and I'm desperate for God and I'm dependent upon God. But sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, the place where we tend to drift from God the most is actually when he's pouring out his blessing on our lives. And so can we just embrace that possessions can keep us from having room for God in our life? And it bears repeating, let me say it again, how much can God bless us and we still remain desperate for him and dependent on him? Because he wants to bless you. Because he needs, again, he needs kingdom-minded people to be entrepreneurs, to be blessed. He needs kingdom-minded people to succeed in the arena of athletics. He needs kingdom-minded people to be entrepreneurs, to build great companies, to, to bring a blessing. Come on, you, the blessing of God to Abraham was you are blessed to be a blessing. In you and through you, all the families of the world will be blessed. Number five, last one right here, is a poverty mindset. And, and God spoke this to me. I, my, my notes were done, I thought it was four Ps. And then the Lord just dropped this fifth one as kind of a bonus into my message. And at first, honestly, I was like, Lord, what, what do you mean? You're gonna have to unpack that for me. And thankfully he did or it wouldn't have made the sermon. <laughs> and he began to show me how a poverty mindset can keep us from really making room for what God desires to do in our lives. And here, here's what a poverty mindset is not. A poverty mindset, and this is kind of spiritual language, might be new to some of us, but a poverty mindset is not the amount of resources that we have. Because here's the truth, is that you can have all the resources in the world, great amounts of money, possessions, assets, properties, and you can still be dealing with the poverty spirit, which is the spirit of a lack, an absence of trust, and the presence of fear. Will God really be able to provide? In the future, are we gonna have enough? 
Can I really do what God's called me to do to be generous and to build the kingdom with my resources? So you can have tremendous resources and still be dealing with the poverty spirit. I know people who have very little resources, but they have defeated the poverty spirit and they are living open-handed and open-hearted. They are walking in the fullness of the provision of God for their life, even in the midst of their nominal resources. So this is not about the amount of resources we have. This is about dealing with this spirit so that we can make room for God to move in us and use us to build his kingdom. And 1 Kings chapter 17 is a really awesome passage that kind of unpacks this for us. And it's challenging. This, this challenges us. But I have the conviction that we don't do anyone any favors if we don't challenge people to live out the way that God's word calls us to live as Christ followers. So here's, a, here's this amazing story. In verse eight, it says, the Lord said to Elijah, go and live in the village of Zarephath near the city of Sidon. And I've instructed a widow there to feed you. So you need to catch this today. This is God's instruction to Elijah. This isn't Elijah's idea. This is God's idea. And so Elijah went. He arrived at the gates of the village. He saw a widow gathering sticks, and he asked her, would you please bring me a little water and a cup? And as she was going to get it, he called to her, the man of God called out to her, bring me a bite of bread too. And right there, side note, carbs are of the Lord. Come on, someone say amen. But she said, I swear by the Lord your God, I do not have a single piece of bread in the house. I have only a handful of flour left and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. And I was just gathering a few sticks to cook the last meal, and then my son and I are going to die. But Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do what you've just said, but make a little bread for me first. Someone say first. Then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. It's a picture of the tithe, where God says, honor me first with the first 10%, and then watch how the rest I will use to provide for you and your family. And this is what the Lord God of Israel says, verse 14, there will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and crops will grow again. In other words, they were in a drought and maybe today it looks kind of the same when we're in inflation and recession, talk of recession, and who knows what that could lead to. Could it lead to a depression? That's the time where God came into this woman's life and said, would you trust me? Would you not shrink back? Would you not be hindered from keeping me first in your finances? And just watch how there'll always be more than you need. You'll always have enough as you look to me first and keep me first. And so she did as Elijah said, verse 15, and she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days, there was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised Elijah. And you know what? The religious spirit would come and say, how dare God go to a, to a widow who had one little cup of flour and one little jar of oil and ask her to give him what all she had. And I'm telling you, you need to see that this is true. God was never trying to get something from the widow. He was trying to get something to her. He was trying to posture her in a place where he could be the source of her provision and her protection. And it's what God calls you and I to. And I understand, I can feel, I feel like I've overcome it over the years in some ways, but I can still feel the intimidation that the enemy kind of brings against me when he challenges me to encourage us to put God first and keep God first in our finances, but I've determined that if God's word says it, I'm gonna preach it. And I've determined that, that we don't do anyone any favors by kind of minimizing or nominalizing something that God clearly calls us to in his word. And so Malachi 3 kind of models the same thing to us. And the context is a people who have drifted from God. 
probably looked a lot like our culture today. And, and, and so the prophet is calling the people back to God. And, and he says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. But you ask, how are we to return? What's this look like? And it's, this, is, this is fascinating. There's a lot of things that God could have said right here, but watch what he said because he understands how powerful this principle is in our life and how much we're given to kind of trusting our own self and our own resources to be the provision for our life. And he says this, he said, they said, how will we return to God? And he said, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. And he says, you're under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. And he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Do you see the parallel between the stories? And he says, test me in this. It's the only place I can find in the Bible where God says, would you test me in this? And I can't tell you how many times I've seen where people have maybe struggled to kind of step into this and they, they get the faith, they acquire the faith, they have the conversation as a couple or whatever and they step into this practice of honoring God with the tithe and I've seen it over and over and over again how God is true to his word. He says, test me in this and how God just uses that moment to just show people how faithful he is and how he'll do what we continue to read right here because he says, test me in this, see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing there will not be room enough to store it. And then, so he says, I'll provide for you. And then watch, he says, and I'll protect you. And he says, I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops. Your translation might say, I'll rebuke the devourer. And the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. All the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land. So, so to make room for God in our lives, we've gotta overcome this poverty mindset. What's it look like for us to begin to say, God, in the midst of inflation, Come on, it's a real thing that we're all experiencing. It's amazing how much I, I go, and my wife sends me to the store, I'm like, I remember that cost half what it costs now. And the, and the discussions about recession and the stock market and all, it's not a time to shrink back or be hindered from trusting God, putting him first, keeping him first, honoring him with the first fruits of our increase. We've gotta defeat that poverty spirit that causes us to not be able to really trust that God's gonna come through to provide and protect. But the Lord, I'll close right here. And I wanna encourage you, just take that and just do with it what God would have you to do. What's your part? Where are you at in, in, in that place in your life? But lastly, right here, the Lord spoke to me and said, but there's also a poverty spirit that goes beyond finances. And because and, and, poverty is about lack. Poverty is about, an impoverishment is a, is, a, is a lack or God's standard is this. He wants to provide and protect and because of fear, of the future or an absence of trust that God really can do what he does, we kind of live beneath the standard that God is calling us and inviting us to live in by faith. And so he spoke to me and he said, there's also a poverty spirit that comes against people in the area of their identity. And here's how that looks. Who am I that God could use me? God really knows the things I've done, the things I've said the struggle I'm in right now. And I'm telling you today that if that's you, you've, you're at risk of believing or buying into a lie from the enemy. But here's the encouragement. If that's you today, I mean, again, you just, you know God has something for you, but you kind of think, it can't be for me. I don't have the education. I don't come from the right family. I don't come from the right background. I've got these disadvantages. I've made the mistake. I really did the thing. I'm telling you, if that's you today, you might've really done the thing, but you are not defined by the thing. And, 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 and I wanna encourage you today. 
I wanna tell you today that there's, you are in good company. When God came to Moses and said, you're gonna be a type and shadow of Christ, I'm gonna use you to rescue my people out of bondage and deliver them to a promise. Moses said this, who am I that God would send me? When God came to Jeremiah and was calling him to be a mouthpiece for God, a prophetic voice for, for the Father, Jeremiah responded and said, oh God, behold, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a youth. And I'm telling you today that if you are in Christ and found in Christ, you are not only anything. You're everything that God needs for you to be. You're exactly who God created you to be. And he is perfect in his timing. You were born for such a time as this. And again, he's with you. He's for you. You're not only or just anything. Not because of anything that we could strive to do in our own strength. In fact, sometimes when the enemy comes to me and says, who do you think you are to think that the church can really grow or make a difference or think about maybe influencing a bigger geographical area or, or make a difference all around the world? Sometimes what sets me free is just say, you know what? You're right. It's, it's not about me. I, I, I can't be, I won't be good enough in my own strength. It never is, never was, never will be about me. It's about Christ in me who gives me strength. It's about Christ in you who is the hope of glory. If Christ is in you, you're never only or just anything. And I wanna close with this list right here. And I read it two or three times a year. If you've heard it two or three times now over the last couple years, just bear with me. Allow it to kind of refresh and remind you. But understand that there's some people that are hearing it for the first time. And this is a list, it's not comprehensive, it's just a list I set down a couple years ago and just began to type out of my spirit some of the things that I recalled that God's word says about you and I as Christ followers, and here's the list. Again, it's a partial list. And here's what God's word, just a few things that God's word has to say about you. Look at your neighbor and say, this is about you. This is for you. Directly from God's word, here's what it says about you. You're a child of God. You're created in his image. You're the first and not the last. You're the head and not the tail. You are chosen and you are loved. In fact, you're his dearly beloved, the apple of his eye. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus who gives you the victory. You're blessed when you're coming and you're blessed when you're going. You're blessed in the city and you're blessed in the field. He no longer calls you a servant, but a friend. And as you trust and obey God, everything you put your hands to shall prosper. You're an ambassador of the highest kingdom representing the king of kings. You're a co-heir with Christ, part of the royal family of God. One day you will rule and reign with him. You're seated, you're sealed rather with his spirit, called by his name. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus and the joy of the Lord is your strength. You are God's treasure, God's workmanship, God's masterpiece, the Bible says. A chosen generation, a royal priesthood. You've been raised to life with Christ and seated in heavenly places. You've been given the mind of Christ and you are the light of the world. In Christ, you have every spiritual blessing. You could do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You're an overcomer. You're victorious. In fact, so victorious according to the Bible that you are more than a conqueror. And nothing, yes, nothing, not fear, not sin, not darkness, no person, no demon, no sickness, no virus, not death itself will ever, ever, ever be able to separate you from the love of God that you have in Christ Jesus. And that is just a partial list of who you are in Christ. If you're thankful, someone ought to give God some praise. And would you stand to your feet?
stand to your feet. I wanna encourage you that in many ways, you're the reason for the season. God came for you. He didn't need to establish another religion, a congregation or a denomination. He came for you. And he's knocking at the door of your heart today and he's saying, would you just make room for me? Would you make room for what I'm desiring to do in your life? Would you allow me to, to cover you, to wash you, to, to heal you, to forgive you? What's it look like for us, for you rather I should say, to respond to what God's speaking to you today? What's it look like for you to say, yes God, I'm gonna make room for you. I hear you knocking, I see you knocking at my life, at the door of my heart. And, and as you maybe just ask the Lord, in fact, just ask him right there, maybe under your, in your spirit or just softly under your breath, just say, Lord, what are you speaking to me? And as he just speaks to you about your life, your unique circumstances, would you allow me to make room for the opportunity today for people who need to experience salvation, who need to experience the free gift of salvation that Jesus came that he came to make a way, he came to pay the price, he came to, to help us to be set free, to be completely forgiven, to be made right with God, to be restored back to a relationship with God. And maybe you're here today and you've never experienced the forgiveness, what it feels like to have all the weight of sin and shame and condemnation completely lifted off of your shoulders. Or maybe you're here today and you once knew God, loved God, served God, maybe grew up in the church, but you've drifted from God gotten busy with life, maybe made some bad choices. And today you just look up and you're far from him. It's not that you don't love him, you're just far from him. And today if that's you in either one of those camps or anywhere in between, right now is your moment. Right now is your moment to come come on, run into the arms of your father. And right now if that's you, would you, would you just do something as heads are bowed, eyes are closed right here, would you do something, just a simple outward sign of the inward work that God's doing in your life today? As he's knocking at your heart today, just a simple way to begin to respond, to open the door to what he's doing in your life, would you just, would you just slip your hand into there and say, that's me. I need Jesus. That's me. I need to be forgiven. That's me. I've been weighed down with the burdens of life. And, and today I say yes to forgiveness in Jesus Christ. I've tried to do it in my own strength. I've tried to make my own way. I, I've drifted from God, and today I'm saying I'm coming home, back into the arms of my Father, back into the house of my Heavenly Father. And if you raise your hand today, you can lower it in this room and online. And here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna pray this prayer with you. We do it for two reasons every week. And the first one is just to come alongside you, help you to know there are brothers and sisters in Christ. Come on, we're gonna stand with you. We're gonna walk with you. If you stumble, we're gonna help you to get up and keep moving forward in faith. And we do it for a second reason. It just reminds us every week we never graduate from grace. Everything God's gonna do, come on, he's building our faith. He's strengthening us. He's, he's maturing us in our faith, but it's all built on a foundation of grace. So come on, many precious people said yes to God, came home to God, let's pray this with them today. Would you pray it with them today? Come on, would you pray it boldly today? Say, Father, in Jesus' name, I recognize my need for a savior. And I thank you for sending Jesus to pay the price I could never pay, to make a way that I might have a new life and a fresh start. I give you my life, I give you my trust. And because of Jesus, come on, say this part loudly. Say, I will never be the same. And then come on, let's do what we read about today. Let's rejoice with all of heaven today. Man, we love you. God loves you. Come on, let's make room. Let's make room in our lives and in our hearts for what God's doing. Come on, let's worship God one more time together. Then we'll come and we'll dismiss you.